Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. I'll tell you about today's topic in a minute, but... First, I'll just say that because of it, I am, I think, for the first time, maybe not, but I think uh, I am recording the beginning and end of this episode outside, particularly uh, in Laguna Beach, where I live, looking at the ocean, uh, enjoying nature while also appreciating the industrial civilization that makes it possible to enjoy nature and just about everything else. And part of the reason I'm doing this besides the fact that it's nicer outside than inside, and it's not yet hot today because it's the morning, is that today we're going to talk about nature. We're going to talk about the subject of ecology, and we're going to be talking about it with a co-founder of Greenpeace. Now, normally that would be the person who knew the least and distorted the most about ecology, but in this case, uh, the person is Dr. Patrick Moore, who is an ecologist, um, actually one of the few scientists who's ever been affiliated with Greenpeace, who was a co-founder of it and then left it, at, at which he writes about in his book, Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout. So uh, Patrick has lots of interesting things to say about ecology, how to think about it, how to think about it from a pro-human perspective, what's wrong with the way people think about it, and particularly with the issue of climate and CO2. So uh, I've wanted him on for a while. I've gotten to know him better over the past uh, several months. So I think you'll really enjoy the perspective that he brings. Power Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Dr. Patrick Moore, probably best known as a co-founder of Greenpeace, as well as an independent uh, ecologist. Patrick, welcome to Power Hour. Nice to be with you, Alex. All right. Well, uh, I think we first met, I mean, I first, quote unquote, met you intellectually one way, you know, years ago, just watching you on different specials. And there was this this phenomenon of this ex-Greenpeace person who uh, was actually saying rational things. Uh, and I have to admit, even though I knew you were ex and you had changed, I have such distaste for that organization, particularly it's what it's done in my time, which is, you know, 1980 to the present. I was thinking, gosh, how good could he be? But, you know, I've met you uh, many times in person or several times in person. Each discussion I enjoy uh, more than the last. And, and recently we've been discussing ecology and, and that's your background. You have a PhD in ecology. So today I want to talk about a rational approach to ecology because you're the only rational ecologist I've ever met. So does that work for you? Sure, that does, Alex. All right. Well, for the people who don't know, tell us a little bit about your background in this, uh, in this field and the, the, the broad evolution of your thinking, and then we'll, we'll delve into some details. Well, in a way, you can say I grew up in the ecology in that I'm from the north end of Vancouver Island, which is a primeval rainforest area. It's totally remote. And so I grew up playing on tide flats by the salmon spawning streams in the rainforest and had an inherent love of nature and understanding of how interconnected and complex everything was. But it wasn't till I arrived at the University of British Columbia, having by that time excelled in science and the life sciences, that I discovered ecology as a discipline, as an academic discipline, at a, at a noontime lecture by Vladimir Kraina, a Czech refugee forest ecologist who'd come in the 50s to British Columbia and he taught me that ecology meant how all things are interrelated and most importantly how we are related to them. In other words, it's all one system. And the other thing I learned as I'd grown up in a secular home uh, with no religion uh, and I always thought that science was a purely technical matter but when I discovered ecology, I realized that through science you could gain an insight into the mystery of life and the universe because it is so infinitely complex and interconnected that the human mind simply can't grasp it all. And people like Freeman Dyson, the great physicist, understands this too from his own perspective. 
he wrote a book called Infinity in All Directions, which to me sums up my understanding of the universe, that it never ends in any direction, time or space. And so uh, I was a born-again ecologist. As a result, I actually found religion in a sense, but through science. And uh, to this day, I think in this way about how all things are interconnected and how infinitely complex it is and how absolutely impossible, for example, it would be to create a computer model that accurately predicted what the climate of Earth will be in 50 years. So that has led me, of course, to skepticism on that front. And on many fronts, uh, I think the environmental movement, or the green movement as it has called, has drifted into the use of sensationalism and misinformation and fear and now tends to characterize the human species as the enemy of the earth when in fact we are part of nature and evolved with all the other species on this planet from nature and to teach our children that we are separate not only separate from nature but evil and the great enemy of nature uh, is I would say to put it bluntly a complete bastardization of science and ecology and understanding what our place really is in this world. What is ecology exactly as a discipline? Well, there's many different branches of ecology. There's quantitative ecology, there's theoretical ecology, there's plant ecology, there's animal ecology, so it's all broken up into sub-disciplines. But in the final analysis, it really is about understanding the relationships among the various components of the environment, both living and non-living. So uh, nutrient cycling is a big part of ecology. Uh, where does everything come from and where does everything go and how do these cycles work? So for example, everybody knows the hydrological cycle is the cycle of how water evaporates from the sea, falls on the land, is taken up by plants, goes down rivers to run hydroelectric dams, ends up back in the sea where the fish kind of like the nutrients that come down from the land because it grows plankton, that whole kind of cycle. And the one cycle that people are not being properly taught today is the carbon cycle, which along with the water cycle is the most important cycle for life on Earth. As a matter of fact, you could say that carbon, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in particular, is the most important food for all life because all life is carbon-based. And yet today, our children and our publics are being taught that carbon, they, that's what they, they, they call carbon dioxide carbon now to make it seem like it's soot or something dirty. But in fact, carbon dioxide is the food that is used by all the plants. And it is now said to be somehow toxic, pollutant, uh, bad. Uh, if, it, if there's more of it, it's not going to be good when in fact plants would love more of it. And so our kids are being taught uh, completely lopsided and I believe completely erroneous uh, version of the carbon cycle as it is, the, it, it, carbon I would say is the stuff of life, it is the staff of life, it's the currency of life, it's the backbone of life and that should be heavily emphasized when wondering about whether or not carbon dioxide is a problem of some sort because there's actually no proof that it is. There's lots of proof that it's beneficial. Yeah, and um, uh, later later in the hour, I want to really I have some uh, questions specifically about about CO two uh, and some ideas uh, that that you've brought up to me that I haven't heard uh, publicized, but I think should be. But uh, in terms of ecology more broadly, I find it a little bit hard to think about in the sense that particularly the the term ecosystem, uh, because I think it's it's easy to view it as something static so and 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 something and and as a as a single entity uh as a gaia and and just to give an analogy to something i'm more familiar with and i've thought more about is uh the idea of collectivism the idea that the group is not just a number of individuals but is in fact an organism and that you have to think of everything in terms of the group rather than recognize that individuals are all there are, but they relate together in systematic ways that you study. So an individualist is very interested in the economic system and things like supply and demand, but he doesn't think that there's some collective that we should be sacrificed to. So in, in what way do you think of the ecosystem, this approach of like the Gaia approach versus a, a system of individual living and non-living things? Well, first off, synthesizing ecology 
uh, with political science is really difficult because they have completely different terminologies. And so uh, when you talk about a population of animals, uh, it, it, you know, in, in a sense that transfers, you can talk about a population of people. But we don't think of it that way. Uh, so it's very hard to get people to try to look at the environment uh, in, in a way that does synthesize the human uh, as well as the nature. And so an ecosystem to me uh, is, is, is the people are part of the ecosystem. And most scientific studies exclude humans uh, unless it's uh, to show how they're parasitizing or destroying or degrading the ecosystem rather than seeing them as simply an integral part of that ecosystem. And in the final analysis, for me, applied ecology is called sustainability. And sustainability is about integrating environmental, social, and economic priorities and trying to find win-win-win solutions that satisfy the needs of all three because they are all extremely important and one way I, I describe that is the the environmental movement to the extent that it is getting things right sometimes is about trying to in, to incorporate these new environmental values that have been developed over the last few decades into the traditional social and economic priorities and policies that guide our behavior and our politics uh, in the same way that social values came into the economic system with the labor movement, with the women's rights movement, with abolishing child labor, etc. Uh, and that tempered the economic priority uh, and the environmental priority also tempers the social and economic, uh, but you can't kill the social and economic priorities by saying, well, the only thing that matters is the environment. And that is why my, my second transition in life was after discovering ecology and understanding in the environmental aspect was to realize that sustainability, which was originally called sustainable development, means you have to balance all three of these factors because they, they, they all have their priorities. And that's how I've thought ever since I first heard the term sustainable development in Nairobi in 1982 at a conference of environmentalists at the, at the United Nations Environment Program. So the term sustainable development actually came out of the environmental movement in a conference between environmentalists from the industrialized countries and environmentalists from the developing countries. To be against development in the, in, in the developing countries, people laugh you out of the room. So the term sustainable development was invented in order to describe a kind of development that is sustainable from an environmental point of view and a social point of view. And a lot of people still don't understand what it means. And a lot of people reject the term sustainability because it's abused on both sides of the fence. The, uh, you know, many times industrial interests abuse the term sustainability. And, uh, you know, we have green everything now. And sometimes that doesn't re isn't really very applicable. On the other hand, the extreme environmental side abuses the term sustainability to mean that we basically have to give up everything we are doing in our lives and, and basically a collective death wish is what they are proposing at this point you know, with, it, with proposing that all fossil fuels, all nuclear energy and all hydroelectric energy basically eventually be phased out so phasing out 99% of the energy supply for our civilization, I think it's fair to characterize that as some kind of death wish or suicide pact. Yeah, there's a lot to discuss with the term sustainability. And I think, I think the, the different ways people think of it get to the different views of ecosystem, what ecosystems are and, and human beings' role in that. So I'll just take an example of something like uh, you know, fighting malaria via DDT. You know, which is a you know a subject where there's been you know lots of different conflict, and I'm I'm you know on the side of using DDT, but more broadly using technology uh, to quite dramatically alter particularly parts of nature that are hostile to human life. So it seems like in you know if we talk about an ecosystem, surely the ecosystem changes when um, 
so it's it's not being sustained in its current form. It's not being repeated. It's being changed. I'd call that uh, progressive development, and I'd I'd think of that as the ecosystem as a dynamic thing that individual participants are trying to shape for their benefit. And in, in this case, I think, and in all cases, I think human beings should generally be shaping it for our benefit, but with the recognition that there are these interrelated parts of it that we absolutely depend on uh, and need. I'm, I'm curious what you think of that perspective. Well, it's interesting. I'm having a Twitter discussion with someone who does not think we should control pests or diseases, but rather we should protect humans from them. I'm not quite sure what philosophical line that actually would lead you to, but... Protect uh, humans from them or protect them from humans? Well, it seems like actually that's what he's saying. Um, so, I mean, evolution is a competition. Um, now, in evolution, in, all through the history of evolution, there's never been any universal health programs for any <laughs> other species, right? And there's, there, there's never been a social program for the species in nature. Uh, when they say, you know, long in tooth and red in claw or whatever that saying is, uh, the, the evolution has been an intense competition and that still applies. Uh, we as humans are involved in a competition against many species of bacteria and virus and in the old days against wild animals. Uh, we've pretty well managed that one. But uh, people are still killed by bears here in my province of British Columbia every year. Uh, so there, there are species out there that are a direct threat to us. Most of them we would call either diseases or crop pests. Uh, in, in animals, we call it diseases too, if it's our, our, our farm animals. Uh, but in, 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 plant, in growing plants, we generally call them pests. Uh, we have to protect our food supply against those species that would eat it all themselves. And most interestingly, in Philippines, uh, they're, they're developing an eggplant which is resistant to a borer that is a, a, the larvae of a moth that drills right into the plant and eats the insides out of it. And farmers in the whole of South Asia are having to spray their eggplants plantations two or three times a week with really sh harsh insecticides because you're trying to kill insects here. And so they've invented a genetic uh, eggplant, which is resistant to this shoot borer. And now it's been introduced in Bangladesh, and it's really looking very, very promising. But a judge in the Philippines, because the Philippines were doing field trials with this uh, genetic eggplant, ruled that it was not right, according to the Constitution of the Philippines, to take the food from one eater, as he described the worm, and give it to another eater as he described the humans who were trying to stop the worm from getting the eggplant for themselves and rather save it for the tables of humans. And my reaction to that was, well, I could understand that decision if the judge was a worm. But the judge is a human, so one would hope he might be on our side in this battle, but not, because, again, this reflects... The reason I left Greenpeace a long time ago was because of this anti-humanism that came into the environmental movement into the 80s and is there still very strong and goes right to the core of the power structure. It's again back to the collective death wish. So when we started Greenpeace against all-out nuclear war and hydrogen bomb testing, we had a strong humanitarian orientation. We were... Uh, we were part of the peace movement, which was to protect people from themselves primarily, but to protect civilization from being destroyed. And so Greenpeace was a, a synthesis of ecology and peace. And a gra gradually, as the org and I was there for 15 years watching this transition occur, gradually the peace part was more or less dropped as we transitioned from fighting nuclear testing and nuclear war. The, the, the Cold War was winding down, and we decided to save the whales. So now we're almost purely on the green side, and it went from there to stopping toxic waste and, and, and seeing that, that, that human industry and human species was the enemy of the planet, and that's where it ended up. And finally, going back to DDT, which is a chlorinated hydrocarbon like PCBs and dioxins, 
and, and some of them are toxic in certain circumstances at certain levels. Uh, chlorine itself is very toxic as a gas. It was used as a weapon in the First World War. My fellow directors in Greenpeace, none of whom had any science education, as I did, decided that Greenpeace should start a campaign to ban chlorine worldwide and all chlorinated <laughs> chemicals. Right? And I said, just joke, sort of half-joking, I said, you guys, it's one of the elements in the periodic table, you know, like one of the building blocks of the universe and the 11th most common element in the Earth's crust. But seriously, it's the most important element for public health and medicine, sort of like iodine was when I was a kid. That was, and iodine is one of the halogens with fluorine, chlorine, bromine, and iodine. And they are strong antibacterials. They are very toxic to bacteria. But Greenpeace has this vision of a world with no toxic and only unicorns and rainbows. And so I couldn't convince them. And I'm going, you guys, th this is really important for human health and, uh, and medicine. Most of our synthetic pharmaceuticals are made with chlorine chemistry, precisely because it's toxic to bacteria. And it fell on deaf ears, Alex, and I realized my organization has become anti-humanitarian. And I favor a, a humanitarian environmentalism. Now, you never hear those two words put together, and, but that is the correct approach in my uh, estimation that environmentalism must care about people and put people not always first but certainly as equals am among the rest of the species to begin with and at times we have to put ourselves first because it is a competition and if the bacteria kill us they win and so we have to kill them in order to keep them from killing us and we have to kill pest crops in order to keep them from eating our crops, unless we can, through genetics, as we have done, invent crops which are naturally resistant to pests, and therefore the pest doesn't get to eat them. But the judge in the Philippines disagrees. So you mentioned in what you were just saying, uh, the, the Greenpeace view that, I forget exactly how you put it, but basically that nature is non-toxic. And I see two two threads, this being one of them, in the green view of the planet that at least I was taught in school, which is one that it's, it, you know, the planet is inherently nurturing, you know, that it's friendly, that, you know, if, if only we do nothing to it, we'll get bounty. And then the second view is that the planet is is static. And, and, and thus, the conclusion is, well, as long as we don't disrupt things, as long as we don't try doing all these industrial things and GMO and nuclear power, we'll be fine, we'll be in harmony with nature, but as soon as we start to rock the boat, you know, the planet in effect is going to tip over. And one of the, one of the uh, things I've most enjoyed in discussions with you is, is your perspective on how dynamic the planet is. And, and to you, I think it's just obvious, but most people have no idea about the history of this planet. So at the risk of giving you an impossible assignment, could you just give us a perspective on how dynamic the planet has been over history that can help us see how small some of the changes we're obsessed about today are? Well, the Earth is 4.5 billion and a little more older years. Uh, life began approximately 3.5 billion years ago. So there was a billion years when there was no life on Earth. It was still a seething cauldron of volcanic activity having formed uh, out of dust and the remains of dying stars around our sun by a miraculous event, I'm sure, but other planets formed too. Uh, so it, it's probably been repeated, and we, we know it has been repeated on many suns in our galaxy. Uh, so there, that, that has to give you some perspective that it's like three and a half billion years since life began. But one of the most interesting things is that it wasn't until half, half a billion years ago that, that life, the Cambrian explosion resulted in modern life forms. Up until then, for three billion years, all life was basically unicellular, microscopic, and in the sea, nothing on the land. So, really, life as we know it, modern forms of life like trees and clams and crabs and fish, have only been around here for half a billion years. Well, that's quite a while, because when you think that just 18,000 years ago, which is a, a split second in geologic time, even in, in, in modern lifetime, 
there was three kilometers of ice over top of Montreal and one kilometer of ice over top of Chicago at the height of the last glaciation, which was one of approximately 60 glaciations that have occurred in this Pleistocene Ice Age, which began 2.5 million years ago, which is also a blink in nature's eye. But there's been 65 times when the ice has come down, swept over the whole of Canada and Russia, in, 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 down into the northern tier, tier states in the United States, and then receded somewhat, although there are still large amounts of ice. Everybody's worried about they're going to disappear, which baffles me because I, I don't really see a heck of a lot of good uh, coming from having ice all over the place because very little can live on it. You don't see forests growing on ice fields or anything much for that matter. And so we are actually still in the Pleistocene Ice Age. Most people think that just because the last glaciation retreated somewhat that we're now, the Ice Age is over. That wasn't an Ice Age. It was a major glaciation within the larger Pleistocene Ice Age, which is two and a half million years old. Three and a half million years ago, which is again a very short time in geologic history, there were giant camels roaming subtropical forests on Canada's Arctic islands. Because before this Pleistocene Ice Age, we were in a 50 million year cooling period that gradually caused ice to come to Antarctica first and then to the Arctic. Before that, the whole world was either tropical or subtropical for a long time, many, many millions of years. And this Pleistocene Ice Age we're in now is an anomaly. It's, there's only been four Ice Ages in the last billion years, and they have been short compared to the long periods of what are called the Greenhouse Ages, where the average temperature of the Earth was far higher than it is today, not so much in the tropics, but towards the poles. Because when the Earth warms, it warms primarily at higher latitudes, and then the, the Earth becomes more even in its temperature than it is now, where it's minus 40 at the North Pole and plus 40 at the equator. That, that gap is shrunk considerably so that it, it, it is above zero uh, at the North Pole, and forests can grow like they do where I am at, you know, half, I'm about a little more than halfway to the North Pole, but Canada is called the Great White North for a reason, because the whole thing is completely covered in snow for six months of the year. And it didn't used to be that way. Canada used to be forested right to, to the very far north. And would that be a bad thing? Uh, and here we come to the question of whether change is good or bad, and, and what sort of change is good or bad. And I, I know one thing for absolute certainty. A two-degree cooling of temperature, two-degree two Celsius cooling of temperature, would be disastrous at this point in time. A two-degree warming, which they're all saying we must avoid at all costs, would not be disastrous. It would actually result in energy re reductions for keeping houses warm in all the colder climates of the world, uh, which is a lot of the world, and it would mean that you'd have a lot more agricultural land and that you'd have longer growing seasons. Uh, and, and, you know, almost the entire country of Canada is incapable of supporting any kind of agriculture. And same with Russia. So all of Siberia, the boreal forest and the tundra are not capable of supporting human populations. And, you know, I ask people, how come there's 300 million people in the United States and only 30 million people in Canada, which is larger geographically in extent. There's only one word that explains that, and that is cold. Nothing else. There's no, no other reason for there only being 10% of the population of the United States in Canada. If Canada's climate was equivalent to the U.S., there would be 300 million people here, and oh my goodness, that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? So, you know, this is uh, a, a war... Of, of deep philosophical proportions, and you put it very aptly when you describe whether or not our job should be to protect uh, nature from humans or whether our job should be to make uh, life better for humans. And I, I, I understand, see, and that fits right into the sustainability model that I put forward. Uh, I, I, a lot of other people use the word in ways that I don't agree with. And I think if you simply describe it as 
an effort to balance the priorities of environment, society, and economics, uh, I think it, it actually makes sense from the point of view of, of, of your arguments as well about uh, the moral case for fossil fuels. I think that part of one consequence of the so-called ecology movement completely misrepresenting the dynamic nature of the the planet and therefore ecosystems on the planet is that people and, and by then concocting all of these like bizarre scares where you say that some change allegedly caused by human beings that's tiny on a geological scale is somehow going to be the end of the world i think part of that makes people actually not interested at all in actual ecological concerns. So I'm, I'm curious if you have an example of something in ecology that we could really mess up and that we have to make sure not to mess up for the sake of our long-term well-being. I get your argument. Uh, just going back to this idea of whether nature is static or dynamic, the, the, the term balance of nature is often employed to mean there's some kind of magic balance in nature. And that is completely untrue. Nature is not only dynamic and constantly changing, but it's often chaotic in that you could never even predict what's going to be the outcome because you can't see through chaos with mathematics. And, you know, the, the book by Glick on chaos is worth reading to give the layperson a clear understanding of just what all this talk of chaos and fractal nature of the universe is about. Uh, we... we we can't predict the future. Yogi Berra said it exactly right. Predictions are difficult, especially about the future. And <laughs> people are constantly confusing facts, which are things that have already happened. There's, there's no facts in the future. There's only predictions about the future. And sometimes people get it right, often uh, out of the blue. But most of the time, predictions are not accurate because we simply cannot predict the chaotic nature of a dynamic, infinitely complicated system like we have on this planet Earth. And too many people think we can. Michael Crichton also said it right. He said, I'm certain there's too much certainty in the world. And there's so many people with strong ideological positions that are in fact not based on observable reality, but are based on belief systems that somehow make them comfortable uh, in their minds. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not looking for being comfortable in my mind. I'm looking for being challenged in my mind. And a lot of people get upset when they're challenged because they want to think they know already about what everything is. But take the case of James Lovelock, the father of the Gaia hypothesis, who put his whole scientific reputation as an independent scientist, a brilliant scientist, on the line with the Gaia hypothesis, postulating that all life is acting in concert as a kind of supra-organism to control the chemistry of the atmosphere and in turn to, con to make it more conducive to life to be on the earth. And it's a beautiful hypothesis and although I'm not religious about it, I think it is really worth understanding what he's saying because everything is interrelated. And yet he then came to be afraid of the CO2 emissions and saw humans as a rogue species against Gaia. So I went and visited him in England at my own invitation for a whole day oh, 15 years ago and we spent the day walking the countryside and sitting around the fire in the evening discussing all these matters. I credit him with giving me the understanding to accept nuclear energy as a positive thing and so uh, in that sense he mentored me greatly because the, the, the being against nuclear energy in the 70s and 80s, while we were all afraid of nuclear war, we lumped nuclear energy in with nuclear weapons instead of recognizing that nuclear energy should be lumped in with nuclear medicine, which is a very beneficial use of nuclear technology. And so I've learned a lot about nuclear since that time, and, and I'm a strong advocate for it. But he was, at that point, strongly concerned about CO2 and the heating of the planet and he he was very good with uh, sensationalism he said that we were about to be reduced to a few breeding pairs huddled around the Arctic Circle ruled by brutal warlords because of the climate change 
And he said these things as late as 2006, 2008, after I'd had my meetings with him and tried to convince him that seeing humans as a rogue species is just too much like original sin. You know, like, oh, we're the only evil species on the planet? Even, the, even malaria is better than us? And so I, I just could not ever accept that. And I just, whenever I hear original, you know, hear people talking as if we are the evil original sinners, I, I'm on the other side uh, of that discussion because we're not evil. We, we have the potential to be evil, but we also have the potential to be good. And on most days, most people are trying to be good rather than, it's just that the evil guys have an advantage because the good guys won't do evil things to them. Uh, as much as they will do evil things to the good people. And, you know, that, that every, everybody kind of understands that. So eventually, in, in 2012, it took till then, I think, Lovelock appeared at the London Science Museum and declared that maybe the reason we are putting the CO2 into the atmosphere is Gaia's wish to stave off another, he called it Ice Age, but he meant another glaciation. Because another glaciation would wipe out half of civilization unless we really invent something amazing. But maybe by putting, he's saying, maybe by putting CO2 in the atmosphere, we will prevent the, 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 the gradual descent into another glaciation, which would be expected if the cycles continued as they have been going for at least the last 800,000 years, as we see in the ice cores in Antarctica, these 100,000-year cycles of glaciations and then interglacial periods like the one we're in today, which lasts about 10,000 years, and then there's a 90,000-year descent into freezing glaciers and three miles of ice over Montreal. So he had the courage to change his mind when he had invested his whole reputation in the we're-all-going-to-die doomsday theory about CO2. He now says, I'm sick of being guilty about this thing. Maybe, there, maybe Gaia does have a reason. And of course, if the Gaia hypothesis is right, there wouldn't be such a thing as a rogue species because Gaia is powerful and Gaia would be using humans for her purposes. Uh, and, and so, uh, as I say, I'm not religious about the Gaia hypothesis, but there is no doubt in my mind that our emissions of carbon dioxide are not only resulting in far better growth of our trees and food crops, and even much higher levels will increase it even more, but they are not harmful to humans, and at this point it doesn't appear as though they are even slightly tied in with warming, which I'm a bit sorry about, because it would be nice if we didn't slip into a 90,000-year decline into another glaciation period. Uh, maybe, maybe we have not the power to prevent that, but we have the power to prevent CO2 from going down so low that all life on Earth dies from lack of this most important nutrient, which is, was about to do during the last glaciation as it reached 180 parts per million, only 30 parts per million above 150, which is where plants die. And if plants died, pretty much everything would die. So this is a perspective that has to be brought to the public and trying to get through the uh, true believers' control of all communication and thought around this subject is no small feat. I always find very helpful just these these long-term perspectives because they, they just put things into context. Uh, summarize what what the history, you've alluded to it a little bit, but what the history is with uh, regard to CO2 because people, and, and, and you mentioned temperature as well, people's default assumption is that we're at a historic planetary high point of CO2. Uh, you know, we're right next to becoming Venus and we're at a high point uh, of temperature because you hear the word record used in every newspaper public, you know, newspaper or uh, online publication. And, and thus we're in this unprecedented territory where we're likely to reach a quote irreversible point of no return and and you observe that just the the history of co2 on this planet completely destroys that perspective yes it certainly does but people when they hear someone say that co2 is higher now that at any time in the last three million years that is a correct statement and the reason it's higher now than it has been at any time in the last three million years is because by three million years ago it had got so low compared to its historical 
levels. Let's just give some time scales here. Half a billion years ago, when modern life emerged in the Cambrian explosion of life, a prolific time in the history of evolution, in many ways the most important time in the history of evolution, CO2 was at least 10 and possibly 20 times higher than it is today at 7 to 8,000 parts per million. Now, 8,000 parts per million sounds like a big number. But 8,000 parts per million is 0.8%, 8 tenths of 1%. And 400 parts per million, which is the level it's at now, is 0.04%, 4 one hundredths of 1%. So CO2 is an extremely minor gas. There's 20 times as much argon in the atmosphere as there is CO2. And it's the, one of the very minor gases too. So you've got most of the atmosphere is made of nitrogen, close to 80%, and oxygen, close to 20%, and all the rest are amounting to 1%. So CO2 is a very, very minor gas. It's a miracle that plants can survive when it is their basic food at a substance that is at 0.04% in the air, and that's where they get it from. So, I mean, there's lots of water in the ground if it rains. So it's not as if, you know, plants, plants could never survive if the earth was only 0.04% water. Uh, but they can manage to get enough CO2 into them to build themselves and make the sugars uh, that give them their energy at 0.04. Now, humans uh, are able to tolerate CO2 up into the way high thousands of parts per million. Uh, for example, in satellites and submarines, where people are for days or months at a time, 8,000 parts per million is the usual upper limit, at which point there's absolutely no detrimental effect to humans. You can double it and triple it from that, and you still wouldn't have detrimental effects. But in all these kinds of limits, they usually say, okay, we want to make the limit one-tenth of what would actually cause observable harm. And so if 80,000 would cause observable harm, Let's put it down to 8,000. And that's what the standard is in, satellite, in, in spaceships and in uh, submarines. So it, it's, not, it's not an issue for human health or the health of any animal on the planet that CO2 doubles or triples from what it is today. But plants would like CO2 to be at around 1,500 to 2,000 ppm for optimum growth. In other words, four to five times what it is now. And yet everybody is worried about it going up to, well, actually, they're worried about it being where it is now. Because, you know, Bill McGibbon's organization, 350.org, was saying it must be kept below 350. Well, it's at 400, and the apocalypse is still apparently not upon us. And yet, even though in the last 18 years we have emitted 30% of all the CO2 because of the industrialization of China and India and all of that, 30% of all CO2 emissions by humans have been emitted in the last 18 years. There has been no statistically significant increase in temperature. And so the hardcore lockstep causal relationship between CO2 and temperature is even now in this short period completely in doubt. But if you look back in history half a billion years and look at the curves of CO2 and temperature, which we're able to determine relatively accurately by proxies such as using oxygen-18 isotopes and deep core sediments in the ocean going back hundreds of millions of years. We can make measurements in those uh, things which are called proxies because you're not actually measuring the temperature 100 million years ago. You are inferring it from certain qualities of the proxy that you're measuring. And we have a pretty good idea about the temperature and CO2. And they don't follow each other very closely at all. There are times when they look to be correlated, but there's other times when they're completely out of sync. And that does not support a lockstep causal relationship because when there's a lockstep causal relationship, things are almost always in sync unless something really radical is coming from the outside and interfering with the causal relationship. And see, correlation and causation are always confused in the public mind, and they're confused on purpose by using words like linked, as in autism is linked to vaccination. 
That word linked is saying that somebody somewhere has found some kind of correlation between those two things. But one of the strongest correlations in the world is between ice cream consumption and shark attacks. They are almost perfectly correlated. When ice cream consumption goes up, shark attacks go up. So th that shark attacks must be caused by ice cream if that is so strongly correlated. And in that case, the reason they are correlated is because they both happen when the weather is warm and people are in swimming and eating ice cream. And therefore, the, the, the apparent causal relationship, the correlation, is being caused by a common underlying factor, and they have nothing to do with each other, in fact. And so I would say that CO2 and temperature are in that category of this correlation that seems to have occurred over the last 50 years because we've been in a 300-year warming period since about 1800 when the Little Ice Age peaked at its coldest in the Maunder Minimum, as it's known, when the sunspots all disappeared. And some people actually think the sun has something to do with the climate, heaven forbid. But uh, anyways, we've been in a 300-year warming period. The last time the River Thames in England froze over was 1814. It had been freezing over regularly during the Little Ice Age for about 500 years. And then it stopped. And it hasn't frozen over since because we are still in a gradual but steady in fits and starts warming trend. And one of those fits occurred between 1970 and the year 2000. Another one occurred between 1910 and 1940. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, does not ascribe that warming to humans. And you say to them, well then what caused that warming, which was about the same as the one that happened between 1970 and 2000? They say, well, that's actually not our business. It must be natural factors of some kind. Well then how do you know the one between 1970 and 2000 wasn't caused by natural factors of some kind? And you know why they know? is because of their mandate. For some reason, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is basically a union of the World Meteorological Organization, weather forecasters, and the United Nations Environment Program, environmentalists, none of which have a really long-term billion-year view of things, they were given a mandate to only look at human effects on climate and not to and even... negative effects. Well, yes, it was, it, it, you're right. It was about negative effects. Uh, but only human negative effects on the, on the composition of the atmosphere. So really, only greenhouse gases. And they are not mandated or even required to consider what possible natural effects might be happening. So as were the Russians, who actually, the Russian scientific community completely rejects this warmism, true believer, Western thing that we've got going here like some kind of fad. They think the sun is responsible for most of the changes in global climate. And that's the avenue that they're, like all those Russians that are up in the International Space Station studying the sun, that's why they're doing it, is to try to understand the cycles of the sun and relate it to the changing climate of the earth. And the, then there's the Milankovitch cycles, which are the 100,000 year ones that are also to do with changes in solar energy coming into the earth that have driven these successive glaciations over the years. And the, 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 if, when you look into it, and I, I, maybe I don't know how you can give a link to my Idea City lecture, which you were yeah, also we'll, we'll link, at. We'll link if, you, if you give people that video, which is only 17 minutes long, I mean, it's really an hour boiled down into 17 minutes, uh, then people will understand that there is at least some reasonable uh, 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 arg argument in the skeptical side of this discussion. And in fact, from my point of view, there is no uh, question that one should be a skeptic of what I believe is not so much a conspiracy because it's being done right out in the open, but what I call a powerful convergence of interests among key elites in our society, which include the media, the green movement, business wanting to be green, the scientific establishment, uh, and uh, there's one other that, that, that I forgot to put in there, but Oh, politicians, that's right. Uh, the, the, these, you know, if you add all of those up, that's pretty well the power structure of our society. And it is in all of their interest to buy into this doomsday scenario because it brings them money. And so, as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. And in this case, 
it's in spades because there, there's there's a trillion dollars or some so much maybe more than trillion dollars tied up in this thing now and it's all flowing into people who are pushing the climate apocalypse narrative catastrophic human induced or anthropogenic as they like to say global warming or climate change depending on what you want to call it but now it's all coming down to extreme weather events and that one makes me laugh because it wasn't many years ago when the climate people if you would say well yeah but it was really cold last winter they say well that's just the weather that's not the same as the climate you know don't give me an example of weather now it's only about extreme weather events because the climate hasn't warmed for 18 years and so there's no global warming there's no climate change so now we have ocean acidification and extreme weather events have replaced that in some ways although they still call it climate change and they and they now are denying that the warming has either stopped or drastically slowed down actually the meteorological office in the UK which is part of the warmest uh push they were the they were the they brought us climate gate uh, they have stated categorically that there has been no statistically significant warming in this century. In other words, since the year 2000, and actually it goes back to 1998, since there's when there's been no statistically significant warming. And so they keep having to reinvent this thing in new ways because the predictions are not coming true. One thing that comes up that I'm actually not clear on myself fully is... When you raise the fact that historically you've seen 20 times the concentration of CO2 in, on Earth and that life thrived, I think one of the common responses you'll get is, well, the sun was less intense back then, and, and if, only the, if the sun was at today's intensity and we had that much CO2 in the atmosphere, we'd all fry like Venus. What's your response to that? Well, 10 times the present atmospheric concentration of CO2 would be 0.4%. The CO2 concentration on Venus is 96%. And it's also not proven that the reason Venus is so hot has anything to do with the CO2. The atmosphere of Venus is 10 times as dense, as, as heavy, as the Earth's atmosphere. That would automatically mean that at the surface, the atmospheric pressure is 10 atmospheres as opposed to one atmosphere on Earth. And when you increase the pressure of a gas, you increase its temperature. So a lot of people think the reason that Venus is at 400 degrees at the surface is because of the density of the gas rather than because of some... You know, Carl Sagan invented this idea of a runaway greenhouse effect on Venus. But actually, prior to that, he had postulated that the reason the temperature was so high was because of the density of the gas. So this is still in play. But, you know, the, the atmosphere of Mars is also 96% CO2, but is extremely thin. And because the atmosphere of Venus and the atmosphere of Mars are both 96%, and they are the two closest neighbors to us inside and outside the Sun, it is reasonable to postulate that the early atmosphere of the Earth was somewhere in that range because they're, they're all three are rocky planets that came together with a hot core and on Venus for sure, outgassing of CO2 is, and, and there's no other possible explanation for it on Mars, that when, as the planet, uh, when the planet was really hot, the, the, the carbon in the interior combined with oxygen to make CO2 because you really have to heat carbon and oxygen up really a lot to get it to form CO2 but that's what happened and so that's why we have CO2 in the atmosphere of the earth but life on earth has drawn the atmosphere down compared to Venus and Mars which have never had any life on them and so the, the original atmosphere is still there basically except for the light gases, which do escape easier. But CO2 is a heavy gas, so it tends to stay in the atmosphere rather than escaping into space like hydrogen and helium do. And so one of the pe things that people don't understand about life on Earth, and, and this comes back to the question of whether nature's in balance or not, is that going back to the Carboniferous era when trees emerged, well, before that in the Devonian, uh, 
when wood evolved in plants. There, but, but there was a point where, you know, before that, there was no such thing as wood. Uh, there, and, and so plants were basically limp and were just sort of laying on the ground, uh, like a leaf laying on the ground. But when wood evolved, which required the evolution of lignin, which is the cement uh, or the concrete, uh, which combined with cellulose, which becomes the, re the rebar of the stem of a tree, uh, they were able to form rigid columns. And that allowed the leaves of the tree to get higher and higher and outcompete for the sun with the plants that couldn't get higher. And that's why trees got so high because they, they went to the maximum limits of chemistry, physics, and biology to get those redwood trees over 300 feet up in the air. And, but when that happened, the biomass of life on Earth grew by orders of magnitude. And in order for that, all the CO2 to, to create that life had to be drawn down out of the atmosphere. And that's why if you look at the history of CO2, you will see that starting at about 4,000 ppm, 10 times today's level in the Devonian, it crashed down to 400 ppm. In other words, 90% of all the CO2 in the atmosphere was sucked up by these huge forests forming all over the earth. Now, this was over a period of 85 years, million years, 85 years, 85 million years. You would think that once the forests covered the earth that it would stop sucking down CO2 because the trees would be decomposing and giving the CO2 back like they do today. But no, when wood formed, there was no decomposer species of fungi or bacteria which was capable of digesting lignin and the lignin protected the cellulose so the the trees themselves the the stems of the trees could not decompose because there was nothing to decompose them and it took 85 million years while trees piled up on top of each other a hundred meters or more deep until a fungi called white rot fungi evolved the ability to digest wood at that time co2 had been brought down to 400 approximately ppm, about today's level after we have taken it from 280 to 400. About today's level, the lowest it had been in the history of the earth until then, because trees evolved. So life itself was threatening to suffocate itself, to starve itself to death, if that fungus hasn't evol hadn't evolved, because the trees would have just kept piling up until CO2 came down to 150 ppm and then the plants would start to die and biomass would gradually shrink over a period of millions of years until there wasn't much of anything left uh, as, as the wood continued to accumulate. But miraculously, that fungus evolved those enzymes after 85 million years of not evolving them. And CO2 then went back up to 2500 ppm from 400 because the fungus released the CO2 from the wood back into the atmosphere and also there may have been volcanism involved in that period as well. There's, there's a lot of factors involved in what the actual level of CO2 is in the atmosphere but there's no doubt that it was the trees that drew that down and we know this because that is what made the coal was all those trees piled up maybe two, three hundred meters thick in some places and compressed into the coal seams that we are mining today. We also know it because when that fungus evolved, coal stopped being made. Coal isn't being made anymore, except, you know, perhaps in really unusual circumstances, like deep bogs may eventually end up being made into coal, but not like it was during the Carboniferous area. That's why it's called the Carboniferous area. So then it went up to 2,500, and since then, which was about 150 million years ago, at 2,500 ppm, it has gradually and almost perfectly steadily declined until it got during the last glaciation we had and some of the ones before that to a level of 180 ppm. So we know for certain that CO2 has not been being able to stay stabilized, that life is pulling it down faster than other forces are sending it back for 150 million years of history. And we have come along a very short time before CO, in geologic time, a very short time before CO2 would have, for the second time, because of life, gone down to levels where it could not support life anymore. 
So both by the invention of wood and now this is the, the thing that most people don't understand at all, the invention of calcium carbonate shells. Creatures in the sea, again, this is back during the Cambrian explosion around five, six hundred million years ago, when many sea creatures evolved the ability to control calcification. Because for billions of years, life had tried to prevent calcification, because calcification is sort of like osteoporosis. And, and you don't want crystals of calcium forming inside your living cells. They figured out how to control the crystallization of calcium into calcium carbonate, which is basically using carbon dioxide that's dissolved in the sea that has come from the atmosphere and been dissolved in the sea to form shells. Those shells sink to the bottom when the organism dies, whether it's clamshells or oysters, which are often on the bottom to begin with. Uh, but then there's the plankton, the coccolithophores, which are a, a phytoplankton, a plant, and the foraminifera, which are a zooplankton, an animal, also evolved. And the shale deposits that we are now going in to frack for oil and gas are the shells of those plankton piled up hundreds of meters, a kilometer or two deep over hundreds of millions of years. That carbon dioxide is being removed from the carbon cycle and put into deep sediments, which eventually form what's called carbonaceous rocks, limestone, chalk, the white cliffs of Dover, uh, and marble, and dolomite, which is calcium magnesium carbonate, are all made by life. And those rocks represent 100 million billion tons of carbon in the Earth's crust, locked away from the life cycle. That is why CO2 has gradually been drawn down steadily over the millennia. And if we hadn't come along and started to put a little bit of it back in the atmosphere again, life would have extinguished itself. So it isn't as if life is like perfect in that sense. Twice, through two completely different chemicals, one lignin and the other calcium carbonate, Life has sucked the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to such an extent that it would eventually threaten the existence of life. And that's why I see humans as an agent of Gaia rather than the enemy of Gaia, because we are doing a great service to the future history of life, and our fossil fuel emissions will prolong the existence of life on Earth for hundreds of millions of years beyond what it would have lasted if the calcium carbonate deposits had continued and none of the fossil fuels had been put back into the atmosphere. The amazing thing is not only can we burn fossil fuels for energy, which puts CO2 back into the atmosphere, but all the carbonaceous rocks can be burned to make concrete. That's how we make cement, is by taking limestone, heating it up, and separating it into calcium oxide and CO2, which goes back into the atmosphere. And in fact, about 5% of all human CO2 emissions are from making cement. And I shouldn't give anybody any ideas, but if we were somehow miraculously able to stop using fossil fuels, which isn't going to happen anytime soon, but if we were, just the cement manufacturing alone would be sufficient to prevent CO2 from further declining in the global atmosphere to dangerous levels. Dangerous levels being levels that are too low, not levels that are too high. So as we wrap up, I, uh, one thing I take away from this that I hope listeners do as well is just the importance of thinking intelligently about our action and being proactive about it because nature is not stable nature is is as you say chaotic nature has this enormous potential and this this splendor but to maximize that uh now and in the long term requires all of this intelligent thinking which means understanding the world versus this bizarre prejudice that everything will be perfect as long as we don't actually do anything uh or think about anything so uh, i really appreciate you as an as an expert in nature and someone who who loves being in nature uh having a, a rational and pro-human perspective. Where, Patrick, where can people learn more uh, 
about you and your work and, and uh, where, where should they go for more? Well, on a, on a day-to-day basis, I'm on Twitter at, at EcosenseNow, at EcosenseNow. My website is ecosense.me. Uh, that's my personal website. My campaign for golden rice, which is another subject altogether, which has to do with the genetic discussion and also with the health of children and the death of children, is at allowgoldenricenow.org. That's allowgoldenricenow.org. And if you Google Idea City, it was a con- it's a conference that's been held for s- the past 16 years in Toronto, a bit like TED Talks, only broader in its scope. Uh, I gave a presentation there, so it's the Idea City Patrick Moore video will bring it up. Uh, it's 17 minutes long, and it gives you my shortened version of the climate change discussion uh, and why we should uh, be skeptical of people who think they know the answer to this. Well, and I think, I mean, even, uh, well, not only have I seen that, I was there. <laughs> I think I spoke right after, right before. But, yeah, and, and we'll link to all of these on our on our show notes. Uh, but I think even skeptical doesn't quite do it justice because it's it's really, it's rational. And it's recognizing all these things that we do know that should inform our thinking. So not just being skeptical about a very implausible uh, set of speculations, uh, but but being knowledgeable about the context uh, in which we need to make these decisions. So, Patrick, thanks again for all of your work, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. I've enjoyed it. Thanks again to Patrick Moore for joining us. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow Alex Epstein. You can follow Center for Industrial Progress. You can follow I Love Fossil Fuels. You can follow I Love Nuclear, or you can follow all of them. Uh, Two most important things from my standpoint, go to industrialprogress.com, sign up for the newsletter, and so you get, you get our weekly updates. I just put out a piece on the Pope's crusade against fossil fuels and why it's so dangerous. I think that's a really important issue because he's, he's all over the place this week uh, just telling us how much we're ruining the planet and how much we have to scale back industry. And, of course, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Make sure to get your copy if you don't have one at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. Uh, share it with other people. You know, every day we hear really good feedback from people. So I think that's the most effective way to spread the ideas. All right. And also uh, share this show with people. I see we've been getting more listeners. Uh, it's It's been fun to do lately. I learn a lot. So hopefully you learn a lot too. All right. That's it for this time. Um, next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.